Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Back again with us is Miss Elizabeth Harper. Thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for having me back. As you'll remember from last time, Elizabeth is a lighting designer based in Los Angeles, and she's also a professor of lighting design at USC. Is all that still true? That is still true. I am an assistant professor of lighting design, if we're using my technical academic title. Last time I asked you about your inspirations for Mysterious Circumstances, what are your inspirations in general? There's a couple of, of things that I keep coming back to. I take a lot of photographs, uh, even like on my phone or, you know, sometimes more purposefully. But I'm a big believer of finding like moments just in life where I think, oh, I've never seen that before. Or, you know what, that's exactly right. Um, I did the show called Little Black Shadows, where it had like, I mean, I know I sound like a broken record about the time of day shift, but I'm kind of obsessed with getting it exactly right. Um, it had like a time lapse of a time of day. And I wanted to get that better than, you know, a sort of theatricalized version of it. I wanted to see the sun go down. So I set up my camera or I set up my phone and I gave up my phone for a whole day, which was terrible. And I set it up to time lapse the lighting in my office here. And I looked at that and I put, I picked that apart until I felt like it was really right. Um, I mean, I just, I take pictures of everything. I take pictures of architectural lighting that I think is cool. I, and like going back to like my secret hobby of traveling and uh, talking about weird Catholic stuff. Um, <laughs> I love Baroque art. I love it so much. I love Baroque architecture. And those guys are lighting designers. Like they're yeah. architects, but they are lighting designers. Like I remember the first time I noticed that like there was this beautiful gold altarpiece and like there's this picture of a saint who has light coming out of his heart and the architect had put a window with gold glass exactly in the right place so it lined up with the painting and it hit the gold frame and it made like a perfect little I mean it was so if I had done that on stage I would be like all right so that's a that's a big win for me (laughs) I feel like once you start noticing like really paying attention to the light around you, then I feel like it's fun to bend that and to subvert expectations. What's an example of what you mean by subverting expectations? Um, I mean, I guess like what I was talking about, you know, with a lot of these shows I do, like, I mean, all that's a thread for, um, for quack, for office hour, for mysterious circumstances is you, you know, the audience is so sure that they know, that they've seen this before. Um, because I think a lot of lighting in our lives just it feels familiar and it doesn't really get the respect it deserves. Like I think most people are like, yeah, I understand set design, I understand costume design. I, you know, picked out my furniture and I get dressed every day. And they're like, lighting design, I don't know, it seems like math. Um But if you look around and you think about what you do, you make lighting choices every day and you get so used to those that they become totally invisible to you. And so I like showing people, like reflecting back, like, hey, you've done this before. You've made these choices. They're they're not even noticeable to you. It's like trying to remember what you're doing while you're driving. It's like that highway hypnosis almost. And then saying, like, what if it did something else? What if the dentist light becomes a disco ball what if this set that you think is a unit set actually isn't how do you support those those changes I, I find that it often helps tell the story because so many plays you know I mean we always talk about that suspension of disbelief I guess I think that idea is really critical to that to subvert expectations and hopefully make people notice the lighting around them and not take it for granted I am so glad you brought up Little Black Shadows. It had this wonderful dichotomy between the harsh daytime realities of life as a pair of black slaves to a white family and then their sort of surreal nighttime fantasies. 
Can you tell me about that show? And specifically, I want to know what techniques you used to create the different environments for domestic slavery and then the moments of escapism and how the transitions worked. Yeah, that was a really, um, it's a special show. It was a world premiere by Kemp Powers at South Coast Drop and beautifully directed by Maya Dralis. When I went into the script, sort of breaking it down in my head um, and how to best tell this story was that it's a little bit inversed, that these children have this rich inner life and connection that they're allowed to have at night. So the sort of shadows of night that, you know, we, we so often associate shadows and darkness with things that are that are negative, with things that are scary. And I think that, you know, that especially in this play can be uh, an extension to how we talk about race, what is light and what is dark. And so I wanted to address that and make the darkness this place of safety and connection in this world that was extremely dangerous for, for these children um, as enslaved children that were made to play with children their own age who owned the plantation or their father owned the plantation. So really the bright scenes, I was really interested in a brightness that felt that felt dangerous, that felt harsh, that felt like too revealing in a way. More like a searchlight than a candle. Yeah, way more like a searchlight than a candle. The candle, you know, at, there's actually, speaking of a candle, the one of the light sources when the kids they are, they're actually made to sleep under the white children's beds. So there are these sort of gothic, large beds, and they have this whole little world. And um, one of the children has a jar of lightning bugs, and that's her sort of source of light under the bed. And so there is that sort of warm glow in that space. There's a scene, it's probably the one of the brightest scenes in the play, where there's a hornet's nest. And the father actually makes his son go up and beat the hornet's nest down to sort of toughen him up. And being able to see that, and, you know, I think that it's easier cinematically, certainly, to shy away from violence and sort of have the messenger in a Greek tragedy come in and say what happened rather than look at it. And also, the, I should say that the shadows that are mentioned in the title, that nighttime world that came alive, was a collaboration between myself and Hannah Kim, the projection designer, who used a lot of reclaimed sort of racist imagery, um, like Kara Walker does, to make these stories come alive and sort of talk about the way that these kids have internalized this world and being enslaved. What did making the shadows feel safe mean for you? What I was trying to do is um, is really make the daytime hyper realistic. We had the in the set there are these two bedrooms that are next to each other that are perfect mirror images of each other: the boys' room and the girls' room. And I did a thing through the windows of the sun setting when they go to bed, and I, I put you know a million lights on those windows to get that really subtle um, shift from daytime through the afternoon into the evening and really try to nail those colors down in a way that is immediately recognizable, not just the color, but the angle as well, and, and make that shift incredibly precise. And then right at the end, when we go into night, it starts to tweak a little to something that you know, I always think of like a blue nighttime sort of thing. It's a, it's a little cliche. It's a little Disney. But it, it, I think the the shift into a realistic day, into a somewhat theatricalized night, made it feel like more of a, sa a safe space. It's not like an electric blue statement, but it's just a little bit wrong from what we've seen and have clocked as reality. And, you know, I think the jar of lightning bugs certainly lives in that world. I have to ask you about the lightning bug jar, you know, a, a handheld prop that generates light. The actual lightning bugs were, you know, it's it's always sort of the, the dumbest thing. It was just fairy lights. It was hard to find the right ones to get the color right. 
I think we wound up putting some gel in the jar just to, to make it that correct green. Um, but then there was like this whole world of lights under the bed that, you know, you can't see from the audience, but this company called Darklight, um, they make these teeny, teeny little, um, even a little gobo projector that's like the size of like half a small mag light. Like they're really little. And so it was a combination under that bed of like, you know, little three inch inkies. Um, but then these little dark lights that were LED and I could be really specific with and get that sort of electric color with that could just graze a little bit and and help out so that, you know, um, I mean, the, the theater at South Coast Rep, it has a balcony. It's a, even the small theater is, is fairly large, even though it feels intimate. So getting someone in the back row of the balcony to see the fireflies is um, a little bit of a, a sneaky trick. It was so important to get that lighting right because so much of the, the play and so much of the crux of that play takes place when those kids are trapped under that bed. It's sort of like a secondary little set with a ceiling on it. Which, as we know from last time, you kind of specialize in. I, d- I love a ceiling. So it was just a little baby ceiling. And getting the lighting right on them was, you know, that's that was the audience's opportunity to connect to those characters, too. So they needed to understand the connection. Thank you for diving into that. Um, what theater makers do you find you vibe with or, or inspire new or better work or ideas from you? My sort of like usual suspects are all super great. We've talked about a couple of them, um, Matt Chapman, Neil Keller. Um, they're always really interested in in pushing the boundaries and you know finding ways to subvert audience expectations and play with those ideas. Um, but people outside of that, like people whose work I look at and I'm like, that's incredible. Um, oh, we've talked about the industry. I think that what they're doing is um, they're looking at like what's next like they're a step ahead um i think they're so cool manual cinema in chicago i mean for lighting design i just i think they're so clever and i i appreciate clever lighting i appreciate low-tech solutions i appreciate high-tech solutions that look low-tech so again like thinking like this is just a parkan like once um i did this play called stupid fucking bird and there was an exploding light at the end and it was literally like someone points a gun at a light and shoots it. And it looked like a pretty high tech thing. Like the light looked like it blew up. But what it was, it was just like an electromagnet. It was a Fresnel. The electromagnet dropped the lens. There was some like dust that like fell out that we would load in every night. And then there's just a fl- like um, an old fashioned flash bulb inside that actually has flash paper. You have to order them from like Ireland but they exist. Wow. Yeah. It, so it actually like blows up, but in a controlled way. So it's in the glass envelope. Um, and so like, but that was it. It wasn't super high tech, actually. It was just, it just kind of seemed that way. So, but I love manual cinema and all of their, their work that, you know, sometimes it's low tech and clever and sometimes it's high tech and clever because it, they don't tip their hand often. That's really, really cool. I'm sorry, I don't have any any bigger thought than that. It's just really cool. I'm like, wow, you make real theater. <laughs> yeah, no, they're they are making real theater. You know, I mean, I think all of those companies have a real serious appreciation for what's live and how that's different from how we consume stories on screens. And you know, really sort of considering their environment and their audience and all of that. I think that. You know, that's so important that it's not um, no shade, but it's not one of those 90 minute TV shows with white people screaming at each other in a living room. Oh, God. Not that I don't love those shows, but there's a lot of them. Yeah, seriously. Um, You know, they say write what you know, but maybe don't. If that's what you know. Yeah, there's definitely like some stories that like, I'm not saying don't write them, but like we've seen a like we we've seen them. And I guess actually on that front, I would add that people who I'm like really into as theater companies and theater artists, like I think of manual cinema and the industry as kind of like a pretty tight knit crew that makes this work together and they sort of know what it is. But 
places like Ashland, um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, um, and Baltimore Center Stage. They're really taking artists from all over, but what they're doing, I think, is really incredible in the theater world. And just because they are doing the thing that I was talking about, about like listening to the actual community and responding and making theater that matters locally, people are increasingly aware that theater has a really bad rap when it comes to, and it goes back to what we were talking about really earlier, like how do you find a space in this world if you if you aren't rich? How do you find a space in this world if you're not white? Um, and I think there's a couple companies out there who are really doing their part to address that on a lot of fronts, when it, whether it's pay equity or putting on a diversity of shows, making sure that their whole season is diverse and making sure that, you know, people aren't pigeonholed into certain roles. Um, I think a lot of theaters have relied on what people think of as like the diversity show. And then those artists don't get to come back for like the big main stage show. Yes. Um, Yes. Yeah. So I, places like that, that are bringing artists together to do that work. That's really inspirational to me. And it's what I want to see when I go to the theater. Yeah. There's something to be said for, you know, theater companies that didn't actually have to read the white American theater. We see you and go, Oh no, what are we going to do about this? I mean, listen, I think everybody can read that and be like, there's still more we can do. I think that you know, certain companies are, like I said, are really, you know, are ahead of the curve on that. And I think a lot of companies were caught a little flat, a lot flat footed. And, you know, hopefully their statements that they put out are just like step one of step all the way into the future. There's another A29 designer that I work with sometimes who was talking about his thoughts with respect to some of those things. And he had said, it seems like what A29 needs to do is have like an ombudsman whose job it is to hear incoming complaints and sort of figure out their merit and then figure out what to do about them within A29. I'm so glad you brought that up because I am actually on the A29 um, Respectful Workplace Committee, or I think we're a task force, sorry. I, there, there's a technical difference between committee and task force, but we, so what my a group of people is doing is actually talking about that and asking how we can implement that and get and talk to IATSE and make sure that our union rules are clear, that we're getting, that all of our union members are getting the training that they need both to understand what a respectful workplace is and how to um, protect themselves and how to, you know, solve problems when people aren't respectful of uh, or they don't feel even safe. I mean, there's so many examples of um, such bad behavior in the past. You know, people feel literally, I'm talking about like literally physically unsafe at work. Um, I think we all know a story like that. So I'm really excited that that's happening. I'm really excited to be a part of those meetings. So, you know, change, unfortunately, in a union comes really slowly. And, you know, we're we're not just A29. We are part of IATSE. So I'm very hopeful that we will have something like that. Tell me about your work on Sell By Date. Now, that was a show that started in New York, right? It did start in New York. An interesting part of the industry I think is shows change as they go different places. And sometimes you go with the show and sometimes you don't. So the original Sell by Day in New York was designed by Eric Southern, who is a very good lighting designer who I also went to school with at NYU. And when it did the LA show, I did the lights and had a very different take on it totally different design and you know the same thing happened to me actually with office hour i designed the lights at south coast rep and it's not like the full production transfers sometimes like parts and pieces transfer and it's basically a new production but it's not a new production really um but you know the theater is going to be like oh we're, we're the producer of the show it's not a transfer um so yeah, so in Office Hour, um, they did not a transfer, but um, a lot of the pieces went from South Coast Rep to the public, and they hired Chris Ackerland, and I was like, yeah, you should definitely, I mean, I, you know, I was like, I'm I'm bummed, but like, 
you should definitely hire Chris Ackerland. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, that's like, it's, it, I feel like it's not like a thing that we talk about because it's kind of, it's kind of sensitive, but like, I think it's really important just to be ambitious, but not competitive because you're going to wind up on like both sides of it. So I wound up on it, that side of it for sell by date, but it was a really different show. You know, I think um, doing it for an LA audience is a much different experience than doing it for a New York audience. I didn't realize it wasn't a direct remount. Yeah, it's a, a sort of, it's that weird gray area between like, is it a remount? Is it produced? Uh, yeah. I'm a little disappointed that Office Hour moved to the public and you didn't go with it. The thing about regional theater in general is like, right of first refusal is not built in to the contract. It's something that you have to ask for and it's really hard to get. And, um, you know, in the cases I, at least in the cases I have heard about from friends and we've talked about, you really kind of often have to band together as a design team and you have to, you know, you all have to be willing to step away and it has to be agreeable to the theater that this is going to be then a transfer and not something that they produce necessarily. So it's, it's really complicated and it's not a given at all. It's something that I try to be really transparent about, especially with my students, just because I think it's a side of the industry that um, people don't really talk about like what's in your contract or like, you know, I also try to, for the same reason, I try to be really transparent about money with them and, you know, talk about like what you get paid for different shows it's sensitive and it feels weird to talk about, but it's everyone who's a designer knows that it happens. It's happened to everybody. Yeah. Well, I am going to retain the right to feel like you got cheated, uh, regardless of whether or not you feel okay with it. I, I'm not okay with it, but I'm glad it worked out this way for you on sell by date. It was a really fun challenge too. Um, that's another set that Dane Laffrey did. So same person as Quack. And the thing about every set designer that I've mentioned today is they are so sensitive to the needs of the lighting designer and know that their set is going to look better if we collaborate. So, you know, this set had like these embedded LEDs behind like a dark RP. And, you know, we did a bunch of mock-ups to see like how far away they should be. And, you know, um, we had some strips on the bottom. And so, like, how high does the little masking need to be so we don't see the little teeth of the strips behind the RP? And, you know, he was really great about, you know, making those little tweaks. Because especially in that show, like, the whole point of it is futuristic. And the future is super slick. The conceit of it is that there is this professor in the future who is doing a lecture on legalized sex work because in this future, all sex work is legalized. And she is basing her stories that she's telling on historical documents. And like the, you know, I mean, Sarah Jones, her like deal is that she can be all of these characters. Like it's not just an impression. She like, can really inhabit a character. Okay. Um, so what she does is like, she's in teacher mode and then like some sound, she's like, let's see what this person had to say. And there's like some sound and some light change. And then she's like another person and she's telling the story and, you know, stories that she's collected through research about sex work. Um, and then there's this sort of meta idea that like, as the professor is teaching the class, she has to keep taking calls from her mom. And there's kind of like a plot twist at the end about that. But like when she takes a call, she like puts her finger to her ear and like steps into a cone of silence. Okay. So that's another, you know, it's especially with a really futuristic, clean space like that. All of those ideas have to come from sound and lighting and they have to be super specific so that the audience isn't like, wait, what's going on again? Like once we establish like this is what the cone of silence sounds like and looks like, we're going to go there multiple times. Or, you know, this is the professor and this is how we know that we've slipped into this other person's body and voice. How much of the show is the upstage wall versus the everything else? Because in the photos, it seems like that's really very critical and important when it comes to scene setting. 
It's a huge part. So the back wall, and then it actually wrapped around the sides because we configured the theater in a thrust. Um, so there were side walls, there was a back wall. Those um, were all sort of part of the same look. And then there, um, there were LEDs embedded in the floor that supported that look. So that changed. And then outside of that, I really just had a very basic system and some specials. Um, I had a, a lavender system, like some side lights and some front lights, and a sort of light blue system that was, you know, a little greener. So really, it was like two super, super light tints. One was slightly red, one was slightly green, um, just to give myself the option, depending on like what colors I was using in the background, that you wouldn't get that awful missing color syndrome. So like, you know, if I did like something green, then I wouldn't have to use the lavender. But yeah, couple specials, a um, couple colors of backlight. Yeah, the actual stage light was not high tech. It was all in the set. Everything was in the set. And sort of in what direction did things go? Did you think about the scene scenery first? Yes. And then that told you what to do with Sarah's actual actor light? Yeah, I mean, Sarah's actual actor light was really driven by her. Um, because she would be like, in the scene, you know, I'm really feeling like I want to get up. Um, I'm going to use the whole front of the stage. I'm going to kind of work the audience. Or in the scene, I'm only going to sit in this, you know, in the one chair on stage. And uh, that was all really driven by her and, you know, just supported by me. The surround was, you know, I sort of came up with a couple rough ideas, just ba- really based on mood. Um, and then I, and I showed those to Carolyn, the director, and I also showed them to Dane and it was like three people having a really nice chat because, you know, there's only one actor and it's, it's one act. So we could like luxuriate in tech on a lot of levels. It was very simple. It was essentialized in a way about time and place and mood. Usually sit in the the dark uh in the kind of the middle of the theater in the back of the theater and the actors can't really see you and like you know they maybe say hi do you want a break and they're probably really nice but you don't really have like a relationship if you talk to them you kind of talk if you're me you talk through the director and are like hey can we do this a little differently do you think it would look good if we did this um you're not telling the actor like hey go over there but there's a much different relationship on a one-person show that there's a triangulation between designer, director, and performer that I think you can really get things that are more specific to the show. And in some ways, I think you're just less siloed on that. You know, I think there's a lot more input, like from the set designer, from the sound designer, and you're giving a lot more input. There's sort of, you know, there's no real department to hide which can be kind of refreshing to just touch base on like, what are we doing when we're not like herding cats? So tell me about the past year. Tell me about what you've been up to. Tell me about how it's been. Oh man. Um, I want to say it's been great. It hasn't been great. Um, It sucks. I want to see my friends. I want to be in the theater and like, you know, my whole, like, like we talked about in the very beginning, I feel like my whole, arc in this career has been about making things and I'm I'm still making things but like but not like I used to <laughs> not with all my friends in a big dark room that's like always 20 degrees too cold um I, it's really come in waves for me it's like you know I, I remember really clearly the day that like every show canceled it was like I want to say like March 12th or somewhere around there and it just it was like dominoes like within a week it, everything was over Um, and I, you know, that hit me really hard. And then I sort of, I really kind of rallied around school and what was cool that came out of it is like, um, I made a YouTube channel for my students, um, basically like showing step-by-step how I make a plot and like how to figure out photometrics on paper and like made these, they're not goofy, but they're like, they're definitely me being like super excited about lighting and um, they worked really well as teaching tools and I'm going to keep them like forever. Um, 
So I actually had the time to like sit down and make those and say, you know, and not just like do it in class and be like, here is a thing that you, I'll do it in class and we can, we'll talk about it. And, you know, it actually, I found that having those videos, first of all, they can always reference them, um, but also it freed up class time to talk about the play more. You know, we were able to, um, we were really able to have conversations. And I think, I think the screens almost helped the conversations in some ways, like, so, you know, once you get over the awkwardness of I'm talking to little squares, um, I think sometimes it actually, it feels like you can say more um, or you can, you're less vulnerable somehow. So I've been really throwing myself into teaching um, and I'm so glad I had that, uh, that time to really make that great. And, you know, it's something I worked on all summer. And, you know, it, it was also a really good, we're all going through this together. And so it was something that I felt like I could really connect with my students about and check in with them and say, you know, like, it's not just like you're having the college experience and I'm your teacher and we, are, you know, you, we have nothing in common. It was actually like, okay, so we're in this together and I, you know, there is something that is relatable right now. And I think that, you know, that actually really helped me. Um, it helped me get to know them. And I think it gave them an empathetic ear. And then this, you know, this semester, um, we're doing virtual lighting, we're shipping lighting pack packages to actors. Um, we're programming remotely from the lighting designers home, beaming into the actors apartments. Um, and I think I think that's really exciting. I mean, I feel like what they're doing and learning is in some ways not theater, but it is also not TV. It's not theater trying to be TV. It's not theater trying to, so you know, it's not like theater with awkward blocking so we can stay away from each other. It's theater for right now. And I don't know if we'll need this in the future, uh, I don't know. I imagine there's parts of it that we'll want in the future. Um, I think, you know, I think every little tool we have is, go, you know, is always useful. And I think that people are making tools in a hurry right now. And they're, we're going to get better and we're going to find, you know, applications in the future for them. So I'm, I'm really grateful that we're all having this experience on some level. Um, and, you know, I think it's also nice to a lot of the lighting that my students are doing has become essentialized in a way that like, you know, kind of sell by date was essentialized. It's like, what is, what is the gesture here that's going to get this across? Um, you know, you can't hide in a, you know, I think a lot of young designers in particular kind of hide in a rig of 300 lights and get to tech and are like, well, we'll, you know, we'll turn this on and this on and this on. And like, it's kind of too much to think about. Okay, next. Um, and it's like, well, if you have five lights, what would you do? And I think that's a super good exercise. Yeah, in, in general, absolutely. When I was in getting my bachelor's, I had class with Dennis Parrishy. I assisted him. I wondered about that. And I wondered if that was, that was how you got connected with Penn and Teller. Um, uh, no, it wasn't, but I, no, I mean, back in the day, like when I was, I was probably like 18 or 19, he put the stamps on his plot, like the little snails and stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, he boiled things down to the essentials where it's like, you know, you have 12 dimmers, you have 12 dimmers, you have 18 dimmers, you know, whatever, you know, you need, you need to hew this thing down to the barest essentials and say what you can with you know, with just what's in house that this, you know, this crappy little theater has on the shelf, you can't bring anything else in. But I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that you assisted Dennis Parrishy as a, as a young designer. Uh, you know, he was a guest on the show several years ago, and I would like to hear about what you learned from him. I really, as an assistant, I, you know, I was in, I was in undergrad and that was one of the real selling points of, you know, being at Webster is I got to assist all of these people who came through and I really, you know, I remember like just taking apart everything and just figure, I mean, it was super early in my career and I was trying to figure out, you know, how all this fits together and why their stuff looks so much better than mine. Um, but really, I feel like what I 
what stayed with me from Dennis is the way that he was in the room. You know, I had seen other lighting designers come through and, you know, sort of have this very, either very tech heavy process where in not necessarily in their design, but like in the way that they talked. Um, And it was sort of alienating to people in the room. Like, you know, I know, you know, the master electrician and people like that, they can appreciate that. And it's good for that. But like, if you try to take that communication style out into, you know, that theater house, like, it doesn't all, you know, it doesn't always land. And I had also seen some like really bad behavior from lighting designers, people who are huffy or like, you know, and, and I watched it backfire and I watched, I heard, and because I stayed in the theater after they left, I heard what people said about them and like, you know, sort of how these decisions get made. And Dennis came back over and over and I just really took in his communication style, his patience with his developing his own design, his sensitivity to the actors. He was, he was always uh, incredibly gracious, but uh, in, incredibly tuned in to exactly what was happening with this, like this specific show, you know, what this show sort of was on the page and how it was coming into the space. And, yeah, he and and a couple other lighting designers were really um, sort of formative to me about, you know, the the way to tech a show. Those sound kind of like just the right lessons at just the right time. Yeah, definitely. You know, right when, you know, you might see terrible behavior from lighting designers, you're seeing this behavior that's, you know, guaranteed to get everything done and leave everyone kind of feeling better. Yeah, everyone felt better. That was the thing. You know, everyone felt better. Everyone loved him. He was always invited back. You know, everyone happy to see him. And then he would pull off these great designs, you know? It wasn't wasn't one or the other. It was, um, you know, I'm always sort of interested in anyone who um, refuses that idea of, like, art should cause pain or artistic genius requires conflict because I just don't think it's true. And I've seen too many people who have shown me that it's not true to believe the ones who don't think that. Yeah. Tell me about what you did on Silicon Valley, the HBO show. That was so fun. I had so much fun. The way I got that show was so weird. (laughs) Um, They literally just like Googled lighting like lighting designers in LA because they so the whole purpose of the like the last episode is that they basically have a corporate event um and they were googling lighting designers in Los Angeles they were like we know we need someone who's well-versed in theater they come across me and I have a bunch of pictures of corporate theater that I've done on my website things like that and it's you know it's on my resume and so they just kind of call me out of the blue and they're like hey um, we want to, we want to do this thing that you've done, but for TV, like, can you do that? And I, it's crazy because I actually know the, uh, the former showrunner of Silicon Valley. So I was like, did he, did he like tell you to call me? And they were like, no, we just, um, we saw that you've done this kind of thing before. And, you know, maybe you can help us look like real life. And so I threw it together really fast. I had like a day to get them a quote and sort of start this process and tell them like, you know, what I needed and what the labor was going to be like, because, you know, I wanted to use my own people because, you know, I wanted that. I wanted my programmer who was familiar. They were shooting at, um, at like a college, um, like a college theater they had a board in the space. They had a, an EOS. So I was like, let's, I want to keep my stuff separate from their, their stuff. Um, cause I want to write my own cues. So like, let's use the board in the space for expediency. I have a great former assistant, Jenna, Jenna Pletcher, um, who is now a TV programmer. So, um, and then I hired this like crack team of my favorite electricians and production electrician in LA, because it was only two days of work. 
So, or I guess it was three days because there was an in, a shoot day, and an out. And, you know, just people I would trust with my life. Um, just like the absolute A-team of LA theater. Um, so I got all of them together and we, I got the package to, um, to the folks at Silicon Valley. They approved it. Um, we went in and it was just super fast. We, um, you know, they hung it. We wrote some cues that day. Um, we had stuff ready to go when the, um, you know, when everyone was loading into the theater the next day, um, it went off great. You know, once you sort of, once you sort of know the language of corporate theater, it's, um, it's, it's a very identifiable thing to me. Um, so it's, and it's almost, you know, while I felt like while I was doing it, because it's such a funny show, it almost felt like a satire of corporate theater. It's like, (laughs) Oh, he, he's going to like, like now it's the blue cue because the blue cue means, you know, we're pulling down because we're about to like do the big reveal. So like, then there's like a ridiculous entertainment act. And so, you know, whether that's like someone from American Idol, who's like doing a corporate gig or like, I think in the finale, there was like, I want to say there was like a dog show. but it was something ridiculous and i was like oh this is this is the pink valley uq yeah um it really felt like like i was doing the work that i had been but like applying it to a scenario where i always think corporate work is sort of secretly funny anyway because because it is because yeah it's a little like on the nose and it's um there's, uh, there's something, I mean, I don't want to talk trash about it, but there's something a little like canned about it. Because it, because it's 6am and you have like, and everyone's like there, like hung over from like the night before and you have some like <laughs> horrible act in quotes that's coming in from, you know, that, that only exists to do corporate events and, and, and to hype up the crowd and the crowd doesn't get hyped because it's terrible. They don't get hyped because it's 6am and everyone's wearing khakis, but this like, you know, uh, acapella group is like trying their best <laughs> and you know it's um it's such a it's such a funny world anyway so <laughs> it was really nice to revisit it I've worked with a, this particular crew who um speaking of coming and hungover which I never do and I never will um to well you're not but this. the but the the audience is that's that's my point the audience definitely is but the joke around because we're always like up until you know one finishing the like the opening act because they didn't show up until 10 or 11 and then we're like up at four or five to like get there to do our to check out the rig and all that so if you can get a picture of someone sleeping in their chair then they owe you lunch oh so like you know, like when your eyes are like, and you're kind of like doing the head nod, like everyone's got their phone ready. Like, <laughs> I'm going to like, I'm going to get lunch out of this today. It's <laughs> funny. So how much sort of of the theater were you responsible for lighting for the show? Like, was it just what was on stage or was there a group of background performers in the audience? Like how much of the theater was part of the show? All of the theater was part of the show. So there was, there were so many shots, you know, we had a full audience of extras and it's really important in those corporate events that the audience is lit in a very specific way. It's not like house lights. It's usually some sort of like ballet, it's like slow ballyhoo of blue lights that's over them. So we did a lot of shots facing the audience. I think we did those first. And, um, you gotta get those people out. Yeah. And so, and we did like, you know, we did all of the reaction shots for, so like when there was something, you know, when there was like the pink cue on stage or whatever, because there was the animal show, um, we would do some, like a little bit of pink light on them. So it looked like they were watching the show and a little reflected light. Um, yeah, we were really responsible for the whole theater. That oh, another thing they did there was they um, there were rats that were supposed to be like loose in the theater, like hundreds of rats, and so they had animal people come in with like Tupperware containers, like the big Tupperwares full of rats, and then they made rat shoots 
in the aisles of the theater so that the rats couldn't like run away. And then they just let like a ton of rats just run in the theater down this little rat chute. (laughs) I mean, we lit the rats, we lit the rats really well. Um, But it was, I never want to see a Tupperware container labeled rats, live rats again. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, But then, yeah, we were responsible for everything on stage. Um, I had rented, you know, like a kind of, like I rented some soft lights um, to uh, just boost the levels of my theatrical lights on stage just to, you know, to get make sure the balance would be right. So we had a couple of things that were ad hoc that we could just like, you know, a spare aura or, you know, a couple of those little um, wireless pars that we could just like throw in a corner, set to blue, walk away. And like, you know, it's a nice shot off stage of like, you know, the fly system of the theater. So it says like we're in a theater. Yeah. We had some auras, we had some vipers, there was some fog. And like, I think the most important thing for that show was like getting bang for the buck. I didn't think, I didn't put like, I mean, I put the, uh, the soft lights in the catwalks, but I, I wanted to make sure that if I was renting a bunch of vipers and auras and, you know, and that kind of stuff, I wanted to make sure that they were in audience sightlines and in the camera shot. So it looks like what we think a corporate show looks like. Yeah. So when last we met, I did not know the depth of your expertise with respect to your secret hobby that you've been published and that you lecture about it. Can you tell me a little bit about Catholic mysticism and how it became something that you were a scholar of? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's important as storytellers to sort of be in touch with your own story. And um, this was something that I really took for granted growing up. Um, You know, growing up uh, Italian, growing up super Catholic, you know, going to to church every morning with my grandparents and really having a a community around me. At some point, I realized that I sort of understood things that were interesting to other people, but they didn't fully understand that there was this culture, this, this cultural niche that was sort of being ignored. And I guess I really realized it when I was in Italy and I started watching other people because, you know, the churches are sort of huge tourist attractions. And I was in Rome and I saw a lot of other Americans sort of approach these very unusual and sometimes really macabre objects, holy objects. And uh, they didn't, I could see that, you know, churches don't really, it's like not their job, they think, to explain this to people. It's their things to use. They're not things to look at necessarily like a museum. Um, So I felt like there was a lot of, there was something I could add because of the way that I grew up and the, the stories I had and the culture that I was really steeped in. So that's why I started writing about it. And what have you gotten out of it or what has it given back to you? I mean, it, it definitely feeds back into theater and ritual for me and thinking about not only what a space looks like or, you know, what an object looks like, but what is its, what is its purpose? What is its for? What is it for? You know, if these, like one of the things that I did is I photographed what are called incorrupt saints uh, that are people who have died, who have become saints, who whose bodies are displayed and are in various states of um, still looking more or less like a person. And those are, th- you know, that's definitely one of those things where it's like, it's sort of like this very intriguing prop, I think, if you see it for the first time. Um, but then to find out that, like, this is actually, you know, if you if you believe in this stuff, this is actually sort of a portal to a whole other world. That this this play this body is a place to pray at, and there's like a whole little like system of like telephone where you like you tell a saint, and the saint goes to, you know, the saints and their souls in heaven, but their bodies in earth. And so they are sort of this 
telephone to another world. And I, I guess I think about that um, in terms of theater, just because I look at settings and objects as what is the sort of end goal of this? You know, nothing is just pretty, nothing is just decoration. We're trying to, I think, create some sort of ritual here or ritualistic space um, and create meaning. So that it's kind of a crossover for me. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> that absolutely makes sense. How much time do you spend on this? How much time do you spend writing or lecturing about it? Oh my gosh. Um, it really varies every year depending on, you know, what I can fit in. I'm sort of always writing something um, now that I'm at USC, now that I, um, you know, or I was still working professionally before the pandemic. I didn't have a ton of time, but I tried to carve out usually sort of early mornings um, just to give myself an hour to, you know, get some ideas down, read very specific, strange academic texts to try to link what I already know to maybe something I found out. Um, but yeah, it's I don't have a ton of time for it. I wish I had more. But yeah, I try to do one or two things a year. Please tell me where people can see your work or learn more about you. Um, you can see my work and learn more about me at eharperdesign.com. And I wish you could see my work out in the world, but someday you will again. <laughs> well, people can tune into Silicon Valley and check out that episode. You can, you can watch the end of Silicon Valley. And um, yeah, other than that, we'll, we'll be back hopefully sooner rather than later. Have you done any writing about teaching or writing about the business itself? You know, I haven't. And I I still feel like in a way, like I'm getting my own footing and I'm, I've, I haven't been teaching that long. And this year has really made me radically alter my philosophy of how I teach, how I relate to my students, what methods I think are effective. So I, I very much feel like I'm figuring that out for myself. And, you know, I've learned a lot from great teachers. I mean, people who are outside of theater, like Bell Hooks, Maybe someday I'll feel qualified, but right now um, I'm happy to sort of watch other people and take it in and, uh, yeah, and keep thinking of myself as an evolving, constantly learning um, person. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I think I'm good. Okay. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it immensely. Thank you. This was, yeah, it was really fun and it was really nice to like connect with another lighting designer since we're, you know, we're all so far apart and like, you know, you just, you don't run into the person at the theater who's like in the other space, which is like usually how you run it or how I run into other lighting designers. So I miss that. <laughs> it's really nice to talk. All right. Thanks again. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight, we tweet at podcastinglight, and we're on Facebook at castinglightpodcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.